Well, this is our final sermon on the issue of corporate worship or the topic of corporate worship. For the last three weeks, we've been working our way through different areas of corporate worship. Pastor John preached two sermons on it the last couple of weeks. And what we saw is in corporate worship, what's going on primarily is we are feeding on the word of God together. We're helping each other do that, but we are feeding on the word together. We come together as a church in order to glorify God by enjoying him through his word. We sing his word to him or songs that are shaped by his word to him. We pray in line with his word. We preach his word. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. All of that is to help us enjoy God and feed on the word together. The gathering of the church is primarily for believers. That's what the church is. You're not part of a church if you're not a Christian. The church are the called out ones. They're the gathered in Christ together. But just because the gathering of the church is primarily for believers doesn't mean that everyone in this room is a believer. And so today, what we're going to be looking at from 1 Corinthians 14, what Preeti just read, is how does what we're doing here relate to those outside the church, relate to non-Christians? The Bible assumes that there's going to be non-Christians present. And so what we're doing here, we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way that matters, that's significant for them, that's understandable for our non-Christians' friends. In 1 Corinthians 14, it, it helps us think through this issue. It gives us categories to be able to lean into and be shaped by. In 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul, as Preeti just read, is talking about the use of the gift of tongues and the use of the gift of prophecy, talking about what should and should not happen when the church gathers together. And one key factor, not the only factor, but one key factor for determining what the church should do is the presence of unbelievers. How are unbelievers going to understand what's going on? Or, to put it another way, how does the worship gathering relate to the world, the outside of the church world? And what we're going to see is that in the worship gathering, we not only feed on the word, but in the worship gathering, we also preach the word to the world. And to see this, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be spending our time in 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to be doing two simple things, making observations and drawing out implications. So not a fancy outline, not a complicated points. We're going to make some observations, and we're going to draw out some implications. So first, let's make some observations. One of the things that you do when you make observations is you want to look at the context of the passage. We're not studying the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We just dropped in here this morning, which means we need to look at what's going on around this in order to understand this correctly. And we see in verse 12, right before our passage, that the Corinthian church was zealous. They were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Right? If you look up your Bibles a little bit, so since you yourselves are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So they want to see spiritual power in their gathering. But the problem is that they want it in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. They are zealous for manifestations of the Spirit, but they're doing so in a way that is selfish. Likely, 
they walk in, this is kind of what Pastor John talked about last week, they walk in as individuals thinking only of themselves and what they can get out of the worship service in a hyper-spiritual way. And this has been a problem for the Corinthian church. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that there's divisions in the church. People are trying to puff themselves up by saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, or some people are the super-spiritual I follow Christ. Right? So they're, they're elevating themselves against their brothers. They're being selfish in that. We see it in the Lord's Supper. When they come to take the Lord's Supper, they're not waiting for one another. They're jumping right in and even getting drunk on the wine, just thinking about their own experience rather than thinking about their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see the selfishness in their approach to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically the gift of tongues and prophecy. What Paul's primarily doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is comparing these two gifts to show how they should be used in the corporate worship service. And there's at least five observations. There's more than five, but there's at least five observations that we can make from this text. And so we're just going to start with one at a time. And we'll go where Paul goes to begin with, and that is to say that tongues without an interpretation, is out of place in the corporate worship service. The use of tongues without an interpretation is out of place in the corporate worship service. Some of you have been a part of churches where tongues was regularly practiced, right? And the Bible speaks to that. Paul says, that's out of place. That's not supposed to happen unless there's someone to speak an interpretation, in which case tongues becomes prophetic. We see this in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And then in verse 18, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says the gift of tongues without interpretation, is out of place in a corporate worship service. Now, Paul is not opposed to the gift of tongues. He's not opposed to the use of tongues. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues. But he says, you should not do it in the worship gathering. The reason for this is because tongues without an interpretation is unintelligible. It's a fancy word to say. You can't understand it. You're not able to know what people are saying. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, when he says give thanks with your spirit, he's talking about in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So if you don't understand what's being communicated, you can't say Yes to that. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Paul says you should want the other person built up. That's why we gather together. We help one another feed on the word. How many of you have been in a gathering where you're the only one who doesn't speak the language that's going on? This is actually pretty common in the UAE. In different parts of the world, this may be less common. Here, this happens all the time. Right? And if you're there, you may try to understand what's going on by like reading the room, 
by looking at facial expressions, but you really don't know what's going on, right? Is the person smiling at you because they're kind or because they're making fun of you? And you just don't understand what they're saying. They may be making fun of you to your face. You don't understand what they're saying. Is the person communicating in a way that's aggressive because they're angry or just because that's the style, right? They talk with their hands. They're, they're, they're big. They're, they're loud. If you don't understand the meaning of the words that are being spoken, you may make guesses and attempts, but you have no idea what's going on. You can't assign any meaning to their words. That's the way it is in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, tongues is unable to be understood by outside hearers. Now, this is different than Pentecost at Acts 2. Some of you guys who know your Bibles are thinking, wait, in Acts 2, though, you have tongues where people are able to understand what's going on. They're hearing it in their own language. Pentecost was a reversal of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11, right, God's people were scattered and they were given languages that they couldn't understand. In Pentecost, they're gathered. And despite the different languages, they hear the gospel in their own language. The point of Acts 2 is tongues is clear to outsiders. In 1 Corinthians 14, it's very clear, no pun intended, that tongues is not clear (laughs) to outsiders, that you don't understand what's going on. Tongues is a spiritual language that builds up the speaker, but it doesn't build up the hearer at least not without an interpretation. Listen to verse 4. We didn't read this in our passage, but a little bit up. It's chapter 14, verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. So they're genuinely being edified. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Other people are able to hear. And this leads to our second observation. The reason that prophecy is appropriate in corporate worship is because prophecy is able to be understood and therefore benefits other people. You can say, amen, let it be, to prophecy in a way that you can't to tongues. What is prophecy? So far we've talked about prophecy, but we, we haven't defined it. Some people think of prophecy as only predicting future events. Right? So predicting what's going to happen in the future. And that is a form of prophecy. But prophecy is not only foretelling future events, it is also forthtelling the law or the word that's already been revealed to people for their good. So you can think about it. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Old Testament prophets. They both predicted things by the power of the Spirit that was going to happen in the future. The new covenant, boom, prediction. But they also looked back at the revealed word of God and the law, and they said, keep the law, people. We have heard what God requires of us. Walk in obedience to this book. What they're doing is they're looking back at the already revealed word, and they are prophesying in a forthright way to people. There's both foretelling and forthtelling. The best definition of prophecy, now it's a bit meaty, it's a bit dense, that I've come across is from Anthony Thistleton. I think that's how I pronounce his name. He has a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says this. Prophecy, as a gift of the Holy Spirit, combines pastoral insight into the needs of the persons. So you have insight into what people need. 
You have a sense of this is for this person. Communities and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or a longer discourse, whether unprompted or prepared with judgment, decision, and rational reflection, leading to challenge, comfort, or judgment, or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees. Okay, that was dense. The key words to focus on are God-given utterances for specific situations. Prophecy doesn't have to be spontaneous. It can be prepared. Right? Isaiah was probably studying the law. We read the book of Revelation. Revelation is a prophecy. Our Bible study last year walked through the book of Revelation. Revelation is loaded with Old Testament references because the apostle John was studying as he prophesied. So it can be spontaneous or it can be studied with rational reflection, but it's God-given for the sake of building up a person or a community. Speaking God's words in prophecy builds up the whole church. And that's why you should prophesy in the worship service and not speak in tongues. The third observation that we see in this text is that there were unbelievers present in the worship gathering. There were, there were non-Christians there, outsiders to the church. We already saw this in verse 16, but, but listen to verse 23. Paul's point here, he says, If the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, that doesn't mean that all have the gift of tongues, by the way. The, the Bible makes it very clear that not everyone has the gift of tongues. Not everyone has the gift of prophecy. Paul's using an argument here. He says, If all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul assumes that there's going to be unbelievers in the worship gathering, non-Christians coming and going. Speaking in tongues does not help them. They think that you're crazy. And this is because prophecy, this is our next observation, I think, prophecy does something to unbelievers that tongues does not. Tongues are actually a sign of judgment to unbelievers. Now, this is a little confusing, but the reason Paul mentions the law in verse 21, when it says, in the law it is written by a people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The reason that he mentions that is to say, if you can't hear from the word of the Lord, then you are under judgment from God. If you can't understand what God's calling you to, then you are under judgment. So the sign is a sign of judgment. Unbelievers will not understand the gospel if you speak in tongues to them. But if you speak the words of God to them, they can hear it and be built up. Prophecy reveals God's words to them. It gives an understandable and clear word of the Lord. Listen to verse 23 again. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all he is called into account of all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is among you. 
The words of God revealed to unbelievers exposes the heart so that they can see the glory of God fall down on their face and worship. Now, I don't think that what this is saying is when it says the secrets of his heart are disclosed, I don't think what this is saying is the, the church looks around and says, this is one's weird, I don't want to point at anyone specific, but I may be prophesying if I do. I know what you did last week, right? I don't think that's what's happening, though I think that can happen. I think the disclosing of the heart is not a calling out known sin that someone has been hiding. I think what it is, is what happens anytime the word of God is preached, is read, or confronts somebody. Some of us have been in church our whole lives, some of us have not, but many of us have had the experience where we come to church not expecting anything necessary to happen. And all of a sudden, someone prays during the pastoral prayer the way that John did. Maybe, maybe this last week, you've been struggling with gossip, where you have just enjoyed knowing what's going on in other people's lives in a sinful way, and then wanting to tell other people to feel like you're on the inner loop. You've been blind to that. You haven't been aware of how much you've gossiped. But then all of a sudden, during the pastoral prayer, the person praying confesses, Lord, we confess that we've gossiped this last week. We've, we've loved knowing what's going on in other people's lives in sinful ways. Please forgive us. You had no idea. You were blind to your sin of gossip until all of a sudden the word of God came. Gossip was called what it is, sin, and boom, you are convicted. You are opened up before you and exposed, and you realize, I've done that. God's law has come and exposed your sin and you're pierced to the heart. I think that's mostly what's happening here. Like I said, it might be calling out specific sins, but I think what's happening is that the words of God, either through the prophetic utterance or through his prophetic word in the scriptures, the word of God exposes the heart. And that leads to our final observation about prophecy is that the goal of prophecy is worship. The goal of prophecy is worship. We don't speak the word of God to the world to condemn the world. We speak the word of God to the world so that they would turn from their sins, fall on their face, and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the goal, that people would encounter God for who he is and love him and worship him and delight in him and declare that God is really among us. So those are five observations from this text. What we're going to be doing for the remainder of the time, is we're going to be looking at how it applies here, drawing out some implications for the text in terms of how it's, we think about engaging with unbelievers in the corporate worship gathering. One of the things that we haven't uh, addressed so far is how Redeemer Lane thinks about prophecy. I've been reading the Bible been talking about what Paul says. So what we haven't said is how our church understands the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Those of you who've been through our membership class know that at Redeemer Lane, we have a, a pretty rigorous statement of faith. We have 12 dense, meaty paragraphs. You can look through that statement of faith and it will say nothing about whether we believe that the gift of tongues and prophecy continues or whether we believe that the gift of tongues and prophecy ceases. 
There's a reason for that. Our official position as a church is that we have no official position as a church on the gift of tongues and prophecy. The reason for that is that we believe that this is something that Christians can have fellowship together and disagree with one another on. We have members who believe that prophecy continues and tongues continue. We have members who speak in tongues. We have other members who believe that those gifts ceased with the apostolic age and the closing of the New Testament canon. We've had elders who have disagreed on this issue, and it has not hindered our unity as a church because we believe that the Bible is supreme and we live under the scriptures ultimately. Now, I'm speaking for myself, so I'm not speaking as Redeemer Alain. I'm speaking as Luke. For myself, I believe the gift of tongues and prophecy continues. I do. I think what Paul says here is applicable for us. And when Paul says we should pursue the gift of tongues and prophecy, that is still relevant for the church today. I've read a number of books. I've read a number of articles. I've had conversations with friends who believe that the gift has ceased with the closing of the scriptures. And I'm, I'm not convinced. So some of you, this could be a great discussion. If you hold that position, we can have it at Jimmy Mall. We'd love to talk. But I, I look at the theological argument. I look at the lack of exegetical support. And I think, I think it continues. Quick reason why I think it continues. Prophecy is not the same thing as scripture. All scripture is prophecy, but not all prophecy is scripture. So some people will say, we have the Bible, We don't need prophecy anymore. Therefore, prophecy has ceased. But I would say the people of God have always had scripture, the words of God, as long as they've had the law. And yet there was prophets and prophecy that was not scripture. There were prophets during the time of the kings that didn't write books of the Bible. They didn't add to scripture. They were genuine prophets, but they didn't write scripture. And even in the Old Testament, Scripture was the standard by which prophecies were tested against. So you don't need the Scripture to be closed to test things against it. The law was always the standard. So you could look at Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, it lays out a situation that says, even if what a prophet prophesies comes to pass, so he says, this will happen, and it happens. You still test what that guy says against scripture. If he says it comes to pass and then says, let us go and worship other gods, he's a false prophet and he should be condemned. How do you know that he's a false prophet? His prediction came true because you test him against the scriptures. And the law says, hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. You shall have no other gods before me. There is one God. So if he says, go worship, you test what he says against scripture and you condemn him. I personally, speaking for myself, approach this text as if it's still in effect today. In fact, as I was praying for the sermon, I would pray that the Lord would help me to prophesy, that I would speak things that are specific and direct. But regardless of where you land on the use of the revelatory gifts, as they're called, tongues, prophecy, here's the big implication from this text that we can all agree with. The most important thing that unbelievers need in corporate worship is to encounter the living God through his word. The most important thing that unbelievers need in corporate worship is to encounter the living God through his word. The world needs to hear directly from God. 
they need to encounter reality and be confronted with it in such a way that says, I cannot ignore this. I can reject this, but it is real, and I am convicted if I reject it. That God is among us. There is truth confronting me, and I've hit a wall. And I have to find a way to respond to this. That happens when the word of God is read. That happens when the word of God is preached. For those of us who believe that prophecy continues, that happens when true prophecy in line with the scriptures is made. God's word confronts unbelievers. Intense moments of spiritual excitement will not do. It will not do. We need truth proclaimed and interpreted in order to encounter God, in order to see unbelievers encounter God. Oftentimes, we can so easily put our hope on creating a good experience for people. We have a welcome team to be able to welcome people, and and we wanted people to feel right at home in our service the first time that they enter. Or we, we emphasize having good music with smooth transitions. I was talking to Caitlin before the service. We, we want to have music playing so it's not awkward when we come in or when we leave because we want it to be a smooth and enjoyable environment. It's so easy to emphasize those things. Now, there's a place for those things, right? There is a place for having a welcoming environment, for being kind, for, for having an enjoyable worship experience. But ultimately, these things alone, experience alone, cannot lead people to a knowledge of God. It can't. They need truth. They need an interpretation. We need content. Imagine that we're sitting in this room, and all of a sudden, a smell fills the room. This bad smell fills the room. Every one of us smells it through our face masks or not through our face masks. And we smell it and start looking around. We're not sure what it is. It's a bad smell. Maybe maybe somebody just had too much oud that they put on this morning and smell it. We're all experiencing the same thing. Then someone stands up and says, guys, this is a gas leak. That's what this smell is. We need to leave right now. This is not a safe space to be in. We all experience the smell, but it was not until someone stood up with an interpretation that we were confronted with something that we could operate with. And we say, let's leave. Let's go out. That's the way it is with worship. Worship is an experience, and truth is what provides the interpretation. The corporate worship service, I should say, I should be more careful. The corporate worship service is an experience. And when we speak the words of truth, it says, this is what's happening right now. God is speaking to you. Thus saith the Lord through his word. And we are confronted with something that pierces our hearts. Experience alone will not do that. You will not be convicted of sin unless you know what it is to sin. Truth is what convicts us. You will not be set free to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel unless you have heard the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel and understand the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It is truth that sets you free. You will not see glory unless you have truth that interprets what you are seeing as glorious. 
Truth enables you to see glory, to fall on your face and declare, God is here. He's in our midst. He is real. When you're confronted with the truth, you cannot go on living as if God is optional. He will not have it. You have to make a decision. Will you either joyfully embrace him or reject him as a rebel? And in our corporate worship gathering, there is nothing more significant than when truth is made clear. Sometimes we can place our hope in miraculous gifts. Some of us come from churches where that's emphasized more, gifts of healing, gift of miraculous signs. But this is why miracles are not enough. Now, the Bible is not at all ashamed of miracles. I believe that miracles continue. I believe that God heals people. But miracles by themselves do not save. They need an interpretation. Otherwise, they're just filtered through someone's pre-existing worldview. We see this in the book of Acts. The book, the book of Acts has miracle after miracle after miracle. Right? Jesus did healing after healing after healing. But the miracle was never enough. Even in Jesus' ministry, the miracle was never enough. It needed an interpretation. When Paul and Barnabas come into the city of Lystra in Acts 14, they heal someone. Boom! Miracle! And how do the people respond? They say, behold, the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, have come down. They interpreted the miracle through their existing worldview. It was not until the apostle Paul and Barnabas came with truth that they were able to repent and believe. Men, why are you doing this? We are also men of a like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these things to a living God, not the Greek gods. It's not Zeus. It's not Hermes. It is the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Preaching the word is the interpretation of reality. This is why Paul calls for prophecy and not tongues. And this is why we as a church place our emphasis on the centrality of the word, even as we are trying to reach unbelievers. One way that 1 Corinthians 14 plays out in our worship service right now is that I assume that some of you in this room aren't Christians. I assume that there are not only believers here, but some of you are unbelievers. You may think that you're a Christian. There may be people here who think that they're a Christian because they were born into a Christian family. But that doesn't make you a Christian. <laughs> Did you know that it's possible to think you're a Christian and not actually be a Christian? Some of you may look at your last name. You may say, I have the last name Samuel. Therefore, I'm a Christian. My last name's not something else. It's a Christian name. I'm a Christian. But having a Christian last name doesn't make you a Christian any more than being named David makes you the king of Israel. Something must happen in your heart. You must encounter the living God through his word. Turn from your sins and embrace him in order to be a Christian. That's what we're praying happens this morning. Some of you are here and, and, and you may know that you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never been to a church before and you're just here to check it out. We're very thankful that you're here. One of the reasons why I'm speaking this way right now is because in light of the text, I want you to know what we believe. I want you to know what we think. We want to be clear. We're not trying to do this bait and switch. We're not trying to draw you in and then make a proposal 
on you that you don't expect, right? We are clear in what we believe. We are clear about the truth, right? There is no power grab. There is no trying to get rich here. We are here because we believe that 2,000 years ago, the most important event took place. God came to us in Christ. The living God came to us in Jesus. He is more than a prophet. He is God's son. He is a king. He is a ruler. He speaks God's words. Through him, we have access to God. And only through him do we have access to God. Some of us have been memorizing. One of the things our church does is we we try to memorize scripture. On your bulletin, you can see the fighter verse. Our fighter verse this last week says it very clearly. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We believe as a church that it is only through Jesus. If you wonder why we sing so much about Jesus in our songs, if you wonder why we sing so much about the cross and Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection in our songs, is we believe that that is the most important thing that matters. That without that, we have no hope. But because Jesus died, we can be saved from our sins. We don't have to go to hell and pay for our sins. We don't have to be an outsider, but we can be an insider, being brought into fellowship with God himself. 1 Corinthians, though, not only helps us as a church think about the way that we encounter outsiders inside our worship service, there's things that we can learn about how we encounter outsiders outside our worship service. This is where we're going to end this morning. One of the things this means is that not not all of you have the gift of prophecy. Some of you believe the gift of prophecy doesn't exist anymore, and that's okay. But all of you have the prophetic word, the scriptures. And all of you have the ability to, like what John emphasized last week, speak the truth in love. To be able to share this prophetic word with those outside the church. To be able to be clear with the truth of the scriptures But what that means is that our evangelism, our sharing the gospel, it has to be intelligible. It has to be done in a way that's understandable. It's one reason why it's important to learn culture, to be able to learn how cultures assign meaning to words, to be able to share the gospel in a clear way. But this is also a reason why you have to use words (laughs) to be able to share. People need an open statement of the truth. Otherwise, they may reach wrong conclusions. One of the things that often happens with um, my non-Christian friends here in the UAE is they see the way that I hang out with my family and the way that I relate to my wife and my kids, and, and praise God, the Holy Spirit has grown me in many ways, and they don't see everything by any means, but they see that and they think, you're a kind person because you're an American. Americans, they're just such kind people. Now, I love my home country. I'm grateful for America. Americans are not kind people. You only need to spend a little bit of time to see how Americans treat each other on Twitter or on Facebook. You need to watch the news and look at the way that Americans treat each other and be like, look, Americans aren't kind. Now, we're not worse, I don't think, than other people, but Americans are sinners, just like all people are sinners. 
And so I make clear when someone tells me that, or they say, I really like Americans because you guys are all like this. I try to be clear that the reason I am the way I am by the grace of God is not because I'm an American. It's because I am a Christian. Because I have encountered God and his word and he has changed me. So that I've brought my life imperfectly, but I'm trying to bring my life in conformity with the scriptures. And I can be clear, you don't like me because I'm American. You may not even know it, but you like me because I'm a Christian. That's why you like me. And then I share the reason I'm a Christian and how that happens. Our lost friends need truth. Kindness alone will not save them. Compassion alone will not save them. Generosity alone will not save them. We should be kind, loving, gentle, generous, but we should be clear. Because otherwise they may think that we're just good Americans, good Filipinos, good Nigerians, or good Indians. Last week, uh, last weekend, one of my favorite basketball writers, NBA writers, died from cancer. He had a year-long struggle with a very rare form of cancer. He struggled publicly. He wrote things about his experience with cancer, and he died last week. He was a Christian, and it was fascinating this week as I was seeking out tributes that honored him to listen to a podcast. I had to go to Abu Dhabi this week, and I turned on a podcast, and I I listened to four of his non-Christian colleagues. These are people who do not at all claim the name of Christ. They think it's a joke. But to listen to these four non-Christian colleagues recognize that the reason why they loved their colleague and their friend was because he was a Christian. To know that it was his faith that was the way that he was. Not just that he was a good writer, not just that he liked basketball too, but that his faith made the difference. Listen to this quote from one of them. Again, this is not a Christian saying this. He's talking about how kind and compassionate and interested in people this person was. This person says, a lot of it, that kindness, a lot of it came from his faith, which he would talk about. He didn't keep his faith hidden and hope that people noticed. He would talk about his faith. A lot of it came from his faith, which he would talk about on podcasts, when you hung out with him in person. It was a big part of who he was. And in a weird way, or maybe not a weird way, it kind of shaped his writing. There was a serenity to it. These people who were not Christians were able to see even the way this guy wrote about basketball was as if basketball was not the most important thing in the world. He didn't have to get blown up when his team lost or get into fights on Twitter with people because basketball wasn't ultimate for him. There was a serenity. There was a peacefulness because he was a Christian. And he talked about his faith to them. There was story after story. You can go online and Google search Jonathan Charks. There's story after story about people saying, he gave me a Bible. He shared the gospel with me. A lot of those people rejected it, but they were confronted with a clear statement of why he was the way he was. And they could not ignore it. He did it because of his faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do people around you know that you're a Christian? Do people around you know that the most important thing about you is that you're a Christian? Have you told people that you're a Christian? Have you told people how to become a Christian? 
Have you given the interpretation of the experience that they have of interacting with you so that they know I'm this way because of Jesus? Here's the truth that has changed me. Or are you just hoping that they'll connect the dots on their own? They need an interpretation of the truth. They need the prophetic word of God to pierce their hearts so they fall on their face and worship God. 1 Corinthians 14 forces us to acknowledge the most important thing that outsiders need is the gospel. It is to hear from God through his word. It is the word which convicts people of sin. It is the word which exposes the hearts of man. It is the word which reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this shapes the way that we respond to people inside and outside our worship service. May we be people who speak the truth to those around us, who give an interpretation of reality so that people in this world can be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a privilege that we do not deserve. It is a gift that is far, far more merciful than we need. Lord, we don't, we don't have to hear from you we have not done anything to earn that. And yet you speak. You give us your word. And so, Lord, pray that you would take the words that I have just spoken. And what is true, Lord, would you apply it to people specifically? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.